Joe Rotter, we're, we're hearing a lot of caution here, aren't we? Watching, waiting, waiting to make a decision. Do you think there is, a, dare I say, it, a Dominic Cummings effect here after his onslaught of allegations last Wednesday about the Prime Minister's attitude to the virus, the, the lack of preparedness, the failure to take advice, the veering around all over the place like a shopping trolley. Do you think ministers are now wanting to be seen to be ultra-cautious, ultra-clear this time? I'm sure they wouldn't want to admit it, uh, that that's sort of framing the way they're taking decisions. But equally, I think inevitably there's going to be some hangover effect from the Dominic Cummings evidence. I mean, one of the things the Prime Minister has made absolutely clear is when he said his date are not dates and then proceeded to put huge amounts of emphasis on the dates, rather undermining that message, was the absolutely critical for th thing for him was that once an unlocking had occurred, it was irreversible. So I think people are right saying that actually going a bit slower on some elements to have something to happen on the 21st, but maybe not everything, would be much better for the Prime Minister than to make a move forward, do the giant leap forward into total freedom on the 21st, and then shortly thereafter have to go back. Because although the Prime Minister's managed to see off the Dominic Cummings charges to date partly through the success of the vaccine rollout, that lingering set of charges of incompetence, unfitness for office, unable to stick with decisions, still, and basically leaving things far too late, will still sort of linger in the mount. And Prime Minister won't want to actually give Cummings the sort of satisfaction of more evidence of that. Mm. Sir Keir Starmer wrote a piece in The Observer today, seeming to cut the government some slack over the, the first wave of uh, the virus, but then went on to criticise Boris Johnson over the handling of the second wave, by which time much more was known. Do you see some key themes for the, the, the public inquiry coming up and for the public emerging here? You know, the, the care homes issue in particular we've been focusing on, haven't we, which was a, a big element in the Cummings session last week and the events of last autumn. Yeah, I think you're... Uh I think Sakir is absolutely right that the sort of second, the handling of the second lockdown, the handling actually, if you like, the third lockdowns sort of lack of preparedness are going to be much bigger themes. You can indeed say back in March, though I think the question that emerged in, yes, in last week's hearing about February is really, really interesting and why we didn't use February a bit better to do some proper contingency planning against the possibility that we might actually have to move into much more extreme measures than we thought were necessary at the time. But I think that is going to be a very big focus. It is what on earth happened in September? What happened again in January? I mean, that bizarre day when the schools went back for a day when it's rather clear, I thought, to almost everybody except the Prime Minister on the Mars show, that the schools were not going to stay open for very long. I don't think quite realised that she's going to reverse that evening. Um, but it was a very, very odd thing. And we've actually seen recently some sort of confusion again from the government. The strange messaging to places in the northwest about whether they were had the rules changed or not, different guidance, quite what was that about? The continuing confusion about the status of sort of green, amber and red list countries for travel purposes. I mean, the government is basically stacking everything on the success of its vaccine rollout, which, you know, is going amazingly well. Uh, 
but it still doesn't seem to have overcome some of those communication problems that bedeviled it all last year. Jill, what did you make of Lord Geitz? I mean, his first moment in the light, wasn't it, after being appointed? Uh, did you did you think he got it right? Do you think this new appointee has all the, the teeth that he needs? Well, he took the job without insisting on the teeth that he actually seemed to be in quite a strong position to try to insist on before he took the position. I think his first uh, first outing won't have ministers quaking in their boots that we've got a sort of tough enforcer in this position. Uh, I think he could have been a lot more critical of the prime minister being so unaware so much money was being spent. I remember when I was vetted you know, for doing a job in Downing Street, not as prime minister, I hasten to add, you know, we were all asked detailed questions about how much was our gas bill. Nobody could remember how much their gas bill was. What was your telephone bill? And things like that to see if we were any way vulnerable to financial pressure because that was always deemed to be quite a big security risk. So I think being unwise that somebody is paying off a bill that could potentially come to you for the best part of 200,000 quid seems seems quite mild. I think the interesting thing is we had the resignation last year of Alex Allen when the Prime Minister chose to ignore his advice about Priti Patel. We then had this five-month five gap with no advisor or ministerial interest appointed. Lord Guy finally took the job. We'd had some recommendations from Jonathan Evans, the chair of the Committee on Standards in Public Life, about how to toughen up the job that the advisor could initiate inquiries and publish them themselves and things like that. Lord Guite seemed to accept the job we heard after a few you know, wobbles just before it was announced without insisting on a much sort of clearer remit, much more independence. And I'm afraid this latest set on Friday just makes him look like a bit of a patsy. Uh, first of all, do you think that there is some sort of compromise way through this impasse at the moment? You know, what happens next? I think there has to be a compromise, but I think the starting point for the compromise has to be that the UK government has to accept that it negotiated this protocol because this protocol enabled the sort of Brexit for Great Britain that the government wanted to see. So it enabled the government to negotiate a very distant relationship from the EU, which is what we saw in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement finalised last year. And that actually, that's the source of many of these issues, because if the UK had agreed to much greater alignment with the EU, one of the things that Marisevkovic was talking about this morning, then there would be far fewer checks. But the UK has put itself at a very big distance from the European single market. You know, perfectly reasonable choice for the government to wish to make, but that has had consequences of making this sea border a very deep one. I think the more the government here talks about you know, possibly triggering Article 16, this provision that would allow it sort of unilaterally to say we're not operating the protocol anymore, the less easy it is for the EU to make the moves that they have to make as well to set in place something that could make this workable for the long term. The one thing I thought Edwin Poots did say that made sense was that, you know, you don't want a temporary fix on this. There's got to be a permanent solution because it's only when we have a permanent solution to this that Northern Ireland can actually, and this is a point Sefcovic was making, can actually start to say, look, 
you know, there are some additional hassles in getting stuff to Northern Ireland, but actually Northern Ireland is the only place where you have access for your goods both into the EU single market yeah. and into the rest of the UK market. So, so you can't extraordinarily well placed. You but can't carry on with grace periods, you know, once once the October one comes and goes, you can't just put you another need, one in. And you may need another grace period, but I think it's got to be a sense that we've got to have a sort of permanent fix on this. I mean, it might be that some sort of temporary deal on uh, veterinary checks makes sense while people don't actually have the staff to implement this. Um, but you do need something that's going to make sense in the long run. I, I think there's quite a lot of sympathy with the idea that if stuff is going into sort of final retail in Northern Ireland, it's not a significant threat to the single market and that the EU needs to actually take a more proportionate risk-based approach to that. Oh, you mean but, like a company that knows it only has bases in Northern Ireland and nothing at all in the Republic of Ireland, then, you know, that, that or, should be allowed to ship or that you have, Or that you have systems so you can show that actually stuff is going into final retail and use if it's going to a restaurant, it's going into a shop in Northern Ireland. It's not a route into large-scale smuggling. But one of the things the EU says is, well, it'll be easier for us to move when you start providing us with the data you promise so we can actually see, you know, what goes into Northern Ireland and stays in Northern Ireland. So far, they're saying that the UK government's not produced that. So I think okay. the two sides need to both, first of all, commit to a that the protocol is here to stay, whatever you think about it. And the UK government, I think, does itself no good uh, by consistently throwing doubt on that. And then that, I think, is a necessary precondition for some movement. And there has to be some movement uh, by the EU. Jill, very briefly, we mustn't forget the issue of funding and donations and who they come from and with what motivation. It isn't solely an issue for the Labour Party, is it? No, it's going to be an issue for all the time that we bulk at state funding of political parties. Really, the alternative is you don't want people having to chase after donations. Yeah.